On this episode of the Scott Radley Show podcast, the Ontario Hockey League trade deadline is this week. That is a league for 16 to 20-year-olds. Some say it is unfair to treat players that age, young men that age, as pieces of meat and allow them to be traded in the middle of their high school years to force them to uproot. Is it unfair or is it what they signed up for? And there is a website. It's a YouTube channel. It's a Facebook page that you want to check out. It's called SBSK, Special Books for Special Kids. It has nothing to do with books, but it has everything to do with uplifting stories about dealing and talking and respecting people who have different disabilities. We talked to the CEO and the co-founder of it. It's a fantastic thing. You want to check it out, but first you want to listen to her. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. There have been, in the past few days, a flurry of trades in the Ontario Hockey League. Tons of trades going on, including today. There are a bunch more today. Tomorrow is the trade deadline in the OHL for overage players, which means for 20-year-olds, tomorrow is the trade deadline. The next day is the trade deadline for everyone else. Well, like in every sport, the trade deadline is always busy leading up to it. And so that's not unusual. That's, that's hardly a reason to bring up this topic on talk radio, a trade deadline that's busy, hardly something brand new. However, the reason I wanted to talk about this today was actually stemming from a piece in the Toronto Star, in today's Toronto Star by Damian Cox, which criticized junior hockey, the Canadian Hockey League, for allowing this, for allowing the players, essentially young players, 16 to 20-year-old boys slash men, to be treated as chattel or cattle. It's a meat market is basically what he was saying. Let me read you a couple lines from what he wrote. You can go read the whole thing yourself if you wish. The OHL franchise, this is him writing, the OHL franchise based in Saginaw, Michigan, got Owen Tippett from the Mississauga Steelheads for six draft picks and Aiden Pruder, a 17-year-old center from London, Ontario. The Steelheads also traded Edmonton draft pick Ryan McLeod to Saginaw for Duncan Penman, a 17-year-old defenseman from Oakville. These are all teenagers being traded in mid-season by teams separated by 370 kilometers and the Canada-U.S. border. It is grotesque. Is it grotesque? Is this the kind of thing, his argument is, the CHL, the Canadian Hockey League, the organizing body that covers the Western Hockey League, the Quebec Junior Hockey League, and the Ontario Hockey League, should put an end to this kind of thing. If you're a student who's in school who happens to play on an OHL team, you should, I guess, be excluded from being able to be traded in the middle of the year so you can do your school, stay in your school, on and on and on. Let me bring in Terry Pekoski, who writes for the Hamilton Spectator. She covers the Hamilton Bulldogs. Uh, Terry, thanks for doing this today. No problem. Do you agree with Damien on this one? Not entirely. Uh, and, and here is where I think he goes wrong. By saying that a lot of these kids who are being traded are in school, first of all, <laughs> now that, uh, you know, in Ontario in particular, that, that there's no more grade 13, a lot of these kids are done high school by the time they're 17. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of other ones are actually just taking courses online. So physically where they are doesn't really impact their their education all that much. Um, and furthermore, I mean, this has always been a part of the league. This is nothing new. You know, all these trades happening in the lead up to the deadline. Players are traded all the time. They always have been. And until I see some evidence that this this has had some, you know, dramatically negative impact on their, you know, their educations, um, I'm kind of not buying it. Uh, Look, I can get it. 
uh, for a 16-year-old kid and maybe for a 17-year-old kid that this could be very difficult. I'm not, you know, if I had left home when I was 16 years old Mm -hmm. and suddenly had to partway through the season after I've just gotten stabilized in a new place with billets and everything else and a new high school and now had to uproot and move to Sudbury or somewhere, I I can get how that could be really, really difficult. Mm -hmm. Uh, But you're right. I mean, to me... If I sign up to play in this league, I think there is at least, if not an expectation, an acknowledgement or an acceptance that this could happen. This is part of what could happen to me if I decide to play here. Not to mention there are some protections built in, right? For first round draft picks, there are no trade clauses. So those kids have to actually waive that. No matter what uh, year they're in, if as long as they're a first round draft pick, they're covered? There might, I, I believe there might be some sort of exception in their, in their first year, but I, I can't remember exactly what it is, which um, I, I wish I could because I, <laughs> uh, but I can't. But there, but there are, I mean, uh, and then it is automatically built in if you are a first-round draft pick that, that there's a no-trade clause. And on top of that, several other, I mean, numerous other players on any given team will actually negotiate a no-trade clause built right into their um, standard contracts. So these things do exist. A lot of the time it does come down to the player and the family to, you know, to okay the move. And, um, you know, more often than not, I believe, uh, they're saying, okay. I don't recall, and I could be wrong on this one. I don't recall hearing a player who's been traded ever speak out against it. And I don't know if you've ever heard a player say, you know what, I was traded and this really stinks. And I don't know if that's the case that they just are doing what we're saying. They just accept that this is part of the game or if the reality is they know darn well that if they were to do that, they put a black mark beside their name. Yeah, I think that's part of it. I think also the fact that we're in southern Ontario as opposed to somewhere like, um, you know, Sudbury uh, or Flint or Saginaw or, or somewhere like that probably makes a difference. I'm I, you know, I think probably there are kids who have, you know, been tentatively traded to Flint and have said, you know, I'm not going, just as, as players haven't reported there to start the season. Um, Sudbury, same thing. Uh, it doesn't happen as much coming the other direction when players are getting traded to Hamilton or to Niagara or to Oshawa, those types of places. Especially if they grew up in Southern Ontario and you've been in Sudbury or you've been in Flint. Yeah, Yeah, and now it's actually close to home. We're talking about the OHL trade deadline. Now, some people who may be tuning in saying, why in the world are you talking about the OHL trade deadline? Well, not only is there a team in Hamilton, that's one thing, but we're talking about the the broader issue that was brought up, and I think other people have expressed it, but Damian Cox had a piece in the Star today about this. Whether or not 16, 17, 18, 19-year-old boys, some of whom are in the middle of their high school year, should be dealt, should be used like meat in a meat market and traded around the league. Do we want, I guess, Terry, do we want what is really supposed to be a a, a level of amateur hockey to be treated like it is a miniature NHL? And to me, the answer is it already is that, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I mean, and that's, yeah, that, that's what I find a bit confusing is, you know, every single one of these kids knows what they're signing up for. The league has been like this for a very long time. This has been happening for a long time. They're working towards that goal of playing in the NHL. Trades, moves, these things are expected. It does make it, though, with all the trades, and there have been a lot of trades going on. And there have. There have. It's been very busy for the last few days. 
And most of the trades, as is the case every year, have gone to a few teams. There are a few teams that believe that they are contenders. Hamilton did this last year when they were in contention. They loaded up. There are a few teams, and this year it's London, it's Ottawa, it's Oshawa, teams that are in pretty central locations. Terry, it makes it really difficult, though, for this league to be truly competitive and have competitive balance when a team like Sudbury that may think that it's a reasonably competitive team apparently isn't able to make trades because nobody it seems wants to go there. Yeah, I I mean it does it does make it tough and and that is one of the things I dislike about the trade deadline and the way the league works these days is you do end up with two or three teams that really load up. This year I have actually noticed a few uh other teams that are sort of marginally picking up players, which maybe that's an effort to, you know, to make it through a round or two of the playoffs and get their younger kids a bit more experience. Um, but, but you're right. I mean, it, it ends up being two or three teams that load up. Maybe kids won't go to other places like Sudbury, which has had a, a very good season, you know, as far as Sudbury is concerned <laughs> uh, so far. Um, and it's unfortunate because I think then it, what, what happens is that some teams kind of kind of give up and it makes it a lot less interesting as the rest of the season plays out and as you get into the playoffs because you already, you kind of know who's going to win, right? Well, the, there's at the start of the playoffs, there are going to be five or six in this, this year, five or six and probably really two or three teams that you know one of them is winning. Oh, oh, for sure. I mean, we can. The deadline hasn't even come and gone, and we could probably already list them off. I mean, London's in the running, Ottawa's in the running, Guelph has started to load up like crazy. Uh, but you know, it, it, it's too bad because there are other teams that are right there. I mean, Oshawa is just a couple points behind Niagara in the East Division, uh, in or sorry, in the Eastern Conference in third place. But I mean it looks like they're not going to make a big push, um, even though they're the ones that acquired Brandon Sajan from the Bulldogs today. Uh, they gave up Jack Studnika. So they're, they're kind of sort of in the, in the middle of the road. And I, I think once you run into a team like Ottawa or, or Niagara, they're not going to stand much of a chance. I, I did hear some people critical of the league today and yesterday and the day before of being there's too much trading in the OHL right now. It's too crazy. There's too much movement. And I again, I had to think to myself... We have, on whatever day the NHL trade deadline is, entire networks that put aside 12 hours with 500 people behind desks waiting for stuff to happen and breaking down trades of fourth-line wingers <laughs> just for anything. We, they're begging for stuff to happen. And here you have all this stuff that's happening. To me, I, I, I love this. I, to, and I think most fans, whether or not it's good for the kids, I think most fans... And whether or not it's good for the league, fans love the idea of this stuff. It's 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 lots of excitement. It's lots to talk about, and I think the league must like that too. That there's lots of people talking about the league. Yeah, I agree. I, I think it's it's interesting, first of all, but it's also complex uh, in a way that the NHL trade deadline isn't because you're you're seeing teams move so many draft picks, and uh, the league actually put a limit on the number of draft picks or the length of time um, between now and the draft pick that you can that you can trade that doesn't make a lot of sense but you can only trade draft picks up to 2024 right now yeah it used to um, be that you could be trading them into the next millennium which is it was just kind of interesting when you're thinking you know the the player on the table is you know a five-year-old playing <laughs> <laughs> was, that's right as you had to put on a pair of hockey skates that's who was involved in this trade today uh, that type of thing 
Um, that's interesting, right? That it, it's absurd, but but it's interesting. It makes it exciting uh, to see how teams are not only sort of building for this year, but navigating their futures. Just That's before part I, of it that I like. Just before I let you go, we only have twenty seconds. What would happen if a player who didn't have a trade, uh, a no trade clause, said, "You know what? I know there's all this trading going on. I don't want to go." What happens to him? Does he just have to go? Uh, I mean, there are cases historically where players have just not reported. So that that is that's something. I mean, you you can't force a player, you can't trade a player, and then force him to show up. Um, so if you really, if you were a young player and really didn't want to go, you don't have to go. I mean, you won't you be playing hockey, go. but it, it, yeah, it's it's the same as a player not reporting to training camp. I mean, we saw it here in Hamilton with Will Bitten, who uh, who asked for a trade out of Flint. He didn't he didn't go to. He didn't go to play there at the start of, you know, two seasons ago. That happens. Hamilton. That happens. It happens. With yep. Flint. Terry Pekoski from the Hamilton Spectator. Really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Anytime, Scott. Thanks. Uh, the trade deadline is tomorrow for overagers. The next day for everybody else. There will be many, many, many more trades in all likelihood. And there'll be people pulling out their hair saying this is unfair. And there'll be people saying they love this. You're allowed to have whatever opinion on that you want. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. A couple of weeks ago, maybe more than a couple of weeks ago, before Christmas anyway, my one of my kids told me I have to go watch this YouTube video. And I did. And I got to tell you, it was terrific. It was uplifting. It was funny. It was, it was all the stuff you want unless you're looking to actually make your day miserable. It's the kind of thing that you would watch when you want to have, when you want to feel good. And I had, and to be honest, I had never, I didn't know what I was watching. I mean, I I knew what I was watching, but I didn't know the background. I didn't know that this was a series. I didn't know that this was something that there were more of than just this one. And what I was watching was a guy talking to an adult with autism. And it was the, the person that he was talking to, the autism, it was, it was abundant, abundantly clear that this person had significant autism. Is that the way you describe it? I'm not sure. But it was very clear that there was something different about this person. And yet this interview that was going on, this discussion was like, not like two people who were old friends just having a conversation. That would be not exactly right, but it was close to that. And, and you're watching this saying, he, this is really interesting. It's, up, it's interesting. It's uplifting. This person is being talked to like they are a, again, wrong word, but just a normal person you would bump into on the street. And I'm thinking that a lot of people probably don't do that as I'm watching this. Well, I'm, I think I'm right. The video was part of something called SBSK which stands for Special Books by Special Kids. The guy who was on there, his name is Chris Ulmer. He is the host of it. His executive director of this group and co-founder is Alyssa Porter, who joins us now. Alyssa, thanks for doing this today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. I got to tell you, I'd never seen this before. As I said, I got put to this by my kids, and I didn't realize. Now, I've started to watch a whole bunch more of them because there's a whole series of them, (laughs) but you have got this YouTube channel and Facebook page which, I mean, I don't know if my description is right. It is, it is conversations with people that have disabilities that are different, that are not the normal everyday people, but they're treated like normal people. Is that, is that a pretty close description? It is. I mean, at SBSK, we believe when you take the time to hear another person's story and to view, 
you know, things from their perspective and experiences you grow and learn as an indiv- you know, as a person. And so we travel the world and interview individuals with a diagnosis to provide them a platform to share their thoughts and experiences. Um, it's a way for people to learn, sure, um, to get to see all of the differences that exist out there and kind of take away some of the stigma or maybe the sensationalization of it. Um, but you'll see, as you've kind of already alluded to, it's just, it's fun, you know, you're showcasing humanity first, the person before the diagnosis and where the conversation takes us and all of the hundreds of interviews we've done is somewhere completely new each time from things as silly as, you know, the movie you wanted to see in the theaters to things that are more uh, serious, like, you know, bullying or or other forms of discrimination. So what you it really say it's, takes you everywhere. You say it's fun, and, and it is fun to watch. And and yet at the same time, I think for a lot of people, the fact that this has not been done before, at least not here, suggests, I think, that while it may be, while it certainly is a good thing, there are a lot of people that are probably scared off by this or skittish by this. Or, I mean, am I wrong? There's There's people who are uncomfortable by the concept. Well, I think in general, when you look, I mean, we use the term neurodiversity, which just, you know, it's a fancy, you know, new age term, but it really is just the acknowledgement that those types of neurological differences exist amongst us as a human race. And so, you know, they're there. And when we take the time to appreciate them, to understand and accept these individuals, to view, you know, the ability not as, you know, a disability, but just that it's a difference and there's different accommodations you know, you really open yourself up to this whole new world of possibilities. So, yes, I think the reason it's so important and the reason that I think people are drawn to it is because there is nothing like it in the world. You're not taught about these types of differences in schools. You're not taught about how to form meaningful connections and have conversations with individuals who may look or act differently than you do. Um, So for us, you know, it's a a place for people to come to learn, to experience new things. And I think what people take away is that we're all so much more similar than we are, you know, different, regardless of a diagnosis. I I think you just hit it, though. I think that many people, most people maybe, uh, are a little, are are not sure how they're supposed to approach this. If you see someone who Mm -hmm. very clearly... Uh, and again, so many of these things we're talking about, I don't even know if I'm using politically correct terms, so forgive me, but, but when we see someone well, who very, thing, yeah. you know, when, when they very clearly are different or very clearly have something that you know is not exactly normal, we don't really know how we're supposed to approach that. Well, I think that's, that's so true. And, you know, using the term politically correct, I mean, that's certainly, you know, there's so many wonderful things about the type of representation that um, and the type of acknowledgement that being politically correct, it shows that you're thinking and you're having forethought about the way that you address or you view someone. But it also runs us into a lot of issues where I think in today's society, a lot of people just feel like going into an interaction that they are not prepared or that they're going to muck it up or um, that they'll just, you know, they're, they're going to put themselves in, in a bad position or offend someone else. And so alternatively, they just choose not to engage in that interaction and what a shame that is. So I hope for us, you know, it's a place for people to come and learn, you know, hear the terminology that people with a diagnosis choose to use and it varies from person to person, but that, you know, um, they're coming there to learn and, and, and grow from there. Is some of the people, and I, again, I've watched a bunch of the videos now, some of the people that you talk to, uh, 
again, it's, it's impossible to not point out that some of the appearance is based on what we see in everyday life. It can be shocking. Have you ever, or Chris, when he's interviewing, has there ever been a moment when even you have kind of said, wow, this is really not, I, I don't know how exactly to deal with this or what to ask, or is it very natural all the time? I think we, in in our work, you know, and just, you know, you grow so much as an individual doing this type of work and having these types of relationships and experiences, but we we always lead with the mantra, you know, presume competence, regardless of someone how it looks or, or what you think their cognitive ability may or may not be, you always presume competence and assume that they are capable of having a meaningful conversation with you. And if you lead with that, you're usually never disappointed. People communicate in such a, a plethora of ways. You know, it's body language, whether they're nonverbal, they're verbal, they're, you know, selective with who they talk to. There's so many other ways we communicate outside of just mere language. And while I agree there are different diagnoses, especially ones that are physical, that can be really startling to people, I think that type of exposure, I mean, if you get even on, in a physical deformity or a facial deformity, you know, if you watch a video of someone who has that diagnosis on our channel, five minutes in, you're probably, that, that sensationalism, you know, it's already gone because you're hearing the person, you're hearing their humor. It's really the humanity that shines through because they're people first, just like you and me. I think when you say, though, presume competence, I think that's the tricky part. I think that's the hard part for a lot of people because you see someone who looks like, they are disabled or very different. And the, we, I think a lot of people, their default position is to presume incompetence. Right. I'm not, yeah. And I, I agree with that. I mean, I think as, like I said, in society, we're not taught to presume competence in others. We're not taught that we have the skills to have those types of relationships or how to feel confident going to those interactions. So it's definitely a practice like anything else, you know, if you're working on, know a diet or if you're learning you know any any skill that you're learning or where you're trying to better yourself it's no different it's an active practice but I think once you engage in just a few of those interactions and you see the results of that simple step of just presuming competence in someone else and communicating just treating them like another person when you have the result of that that amazing conversation whatever it is the last you share the memory that you've created you know, it just reinforces it, you know, it's positive reinforcement and then it makes it easier and easier to do as you go forward. So it's not impossible. It's just, it's something you practice. Um, you make a conscious effort to do so. And that's what everyone's deserving of, you know, acceptance and understanding um, and respect in that regard. There are lots and lots and lots of YouTube channels. Uh, seems most of them either involve eating gross amounts of food or people falling on their <laughs> face or something else. Uh, where did the idea for this one come from? Because this one pretty much stands alone in what it does. Where, where did you guys come up with the concept for this? Well, Chris was a um, special education teacher in a classroom with the same students for about three years. And in the third year when they would do their community outings, you know, we just kind of realized we saw the disconnect, you know, we saw the cashier at the grocery store who wanted to engage with them, but who, for the same reasons you've mentioned, just didn't feel confident or able to. And, you know, having had the opportunity and have been afforded the time to get to know them and to foster such wonderful relationships with these students, we knew them. We knew them as just people, their sense of humor, their imagination, their their wit and sarcasm. I mean, all of those things that you learn to love about anyone that you you meet. 
um, they were there for them. And what a shame we thought that the rest of our community couldn't see it. So it started with the idea for a book series and we... Hence the name. Yeah. And so we wrote some books, tried to write some books and sent it out to a lot of publishers and we got over 50 rejection letters with people just advocating that there is no market for something like that, which to us, you know, that's clearly not true. People want to learn about neurodiversity. They want to, you know, to be exposed to this type of, of, of content to be able to learn and grow and, and meet new people. And so when that rejection came, we said, you know what, let's try another way. And so we started on Facebook making short classroom videos, everything from lesson plans to interviews with the kids. And it really took off. We had one video in specific, you know, in particular go viral about, I don't know, I'd say seven or eight months after we started. And it quickly became the most viewed video on ABC World News, um, the national affiliate Facebook page. It was viewed over 10 billion times or something, you know, just absolutely insane like that. Um, and then from there, we, we just started getting messages from people all over the world saying, can you help us share our story? So we turned it into a nonprofit and just began traveling and, and doing just that, filming interviews and helping to share stories. And about a year ago, just over a year ago, we tried to make the change to YouTube, and we're just so thankful we did. Um, I think YouTube does get a bad rap sometimes, and there is a lot of content that maybe isn't you know, adding too much to the public discourse. But for us, being content creators there, there was a real sense of validity that came with what we were doing. There was a community, you know, that we were able to engage with young children, you know, young kids, young adults who are the next generation and being able to share this with them to help educate and change their perspective. That's what we always wanted to do was to change, you know, the next for the next generation that grew up, change their world help it to be more inclusive and more accepting. And so we've already surpassed 1.1 million followers on YouTube, and we've just really been enjoying uh, enjoying the platform and the community that we've engaged there. You mentioned a couple minutes ago about when you would take them out back then and you would go to a store and the cashier or whatever. When these interviews are done, when you're sitting and when Chris is sitting talking to these kids and their families or whomever else, what percentage, how many of them when you talk to brought up the idea that at some point they'd been bullied or they'd been teased or they'd been whatever for their appearance or their situation? Most? Well, like, it's hard to say. I would, I mean, if I'm generalizing, I would say most. I mean, that type of isolation is really felt by individuals in the special needs community. You know, you're, it's not a typical experience for a parent who every step of the way is fighting to advocate for their child. A lot of, if we're getting into policy and things like that, a lot of the policies are really tricky too. Like kids have to fail in a public school in order to be able, able to qualify for the types of special education programs that they would flourish and thrive in. So there's a lot of back and forth and there's medically fragile children. I mean, there's so much that goes into being part of a family with a child who has a diagnosis. And so there's I think a lot of isolation that comes from wanting to protect that child. There's a lot of isolation that comes just given the nature of the amount of work and the extra things that you do. Um, But no one wants to feel that way. And I think the more and more exposure that we're bringing it to our site, the more and more these families are finding their voice. You know, we certainly didn't, they've had it all along. We've just given them a platform to kind of 
share it. Um, but so many of them are wonderful self-advocates on their own as well. Um, but I think definitely a lot of them feel isolated and have experienced bullying or, or some lack of acceptance there. And it's not just the kids. I, 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 my daughter works with a couple times a week, looks after a, a young boy who has a significant disability. And it is the light, the parents that, the, you know, day after day, it is, it's not just the kid, it's the family as well. I know they're on there, but it, it reflects on how difficult some of these situations are for the family that has to be involved as well. Definitely. And I think when you look at a diagnosis too, it's, you know, it's tricky. I mean, I think when we look at autism and other diagnoses, the idea of the neurodiversity movement is that those aren't disabilities, that they're the product of, you know, of, of evolution in a way, and that there are great gifts that come with being autistic or, you know, and there's so many diagnoses like that where the individual just views it as part of themselves. I mean, imagine that's just intrinsic to who you are. It's not the first thing you think about when you wake up. It's certainly not the last thing you think about when you go to bed, it's just part of who they are. So their diagnosis isn't their whole world. But then you have other diagnosis. Um, EB is epidermis boliosis. And that is literally when your skin, it just degrades. Mm. There's a gentleman named John who we featured who I believe over 90% of his body is open sores. And that's from the time he was born. He was born with literally his bones showing at places. And so there are, there are also what I would view more as, as really horrific diseases. And so we cover the whole gambit. So some definitely we advocate for a cure. No one wants to see anyone in pain like that. Um, But other times I think it's about accepting and acknowledging the beauty that comes with the diagnosis. Um, So for the families, they're a part of our interviews. You'll see it in different capacities. We share stories from kids as young as a couple months old, all the way to 96 years old. Um, So there really is just a whole wealth of stories for you to learn um, and people to meet. We always say meet a new friend. That's how we view it. I I watched that one with John, with the the boy with the the really brittle skin. And it was, it's, I mean, some of these are funny, to be honest, and some Mm -hmm. of them are uplifting. Some of them are really emotional and and heartbreaking. When you're watching that, and I don't know if you were there when that was happening, but I mean, can you watch that and not feel torn up after watching that? No, I think, I don't think anyone can. I mean, it's just a horrific condition and that's, but I think that's also why it's so important to bring exposure to it. I mean, John himself, his family are dear friends of ours. That The interview you saw was not the first time that we've met John um, and they're very close and near and dear friends to us and he's a beautiful soul. Um, but his quality of life, um, the struggles that he goes through, those are very real and I wouldn't wish that upon a single soul. His family, you know, that's just their norm, you know, as well. So it's it just, you know, it's definitely hard at times. You know, some of them are more funny and lighthearted, like you said. Um, but no, I, I don't think I can watch any of, of those types of videos or John in specific and, and not feel a little heartbreak for him because we do care deeply for him on just, a personal level as well. J- just before I let you go, uh, and by the way, for anyone who's just joining us, we're talking about something called SBSK, Special Books by Special Kids. You can see their clips on YouTube, well, not clips, their interviews with people with different di- different diagnoses, is how you describe mm-hmm. them, uh, on YouTube. <laughs> Uh, what is the hope from this then? I mean, is the idea that this would, for lack of a better term, normalize people who we normally wouldn't, or most of us wouldn't normally see as completely normal? Is that, is that a, a way to put it? Yeah, it's very close to our mission statement. You know, we, we just really seek to normalize the diversity of the human condition. You know, we all 
exists and experience the world in such unique ways, in my opinion, whether you have a formal diagnosis or not. So for us, it, it's just to be able to bring awareness, to foster understanding and acceptance for different conditions, to advocate for acceptance and inclusion. So yeah, just changing the world, helping to make sure that these individuals have a part of it, that the accommodations that they need are met and not viewed as something that's extraneous, but just, you know, just something you do. Um, are you hearing or, that it's having know, that effect? Are you hearing from people that th- oh, that's yeah. what they're getting from it? Definitely. I mean, we almost stopped doing it really early on because we never wanted to create an echo chamber where we were just preaching to other parents, you know, of kids with a diagnosis who already knew what we were talking about. I think the shift to YouTube has been huge for us because we are, we're interacting with kids you know, eight to 25 years old. And these are, these are children who are still forming their opinions about the world. They're going to be employers and they're going to be parents themselves one day. And so for them to have a, a different perspective altogether than the current one, one that's more inclusive and understanding, you know, that's the dream that they're changing the world, you know, and that we're helping to inspire that change in them. Alyssa Porter, the executive director and co-founder of SBSK. Go take a look online, not right now, at the end of the show, but go take a look at you on YouTube afterwards, SBSK, Special Books by Special Kids. It is well worth your time. Alyssa, really appreciate you taking the time to do this today. Thanks. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks, and have a great night. Uh, again, go please go take a look. It really is something that you'll want to take a look at, and I am very positive that if you watch one, you won't just watch one, because it is a very different way of looking at people who have disabilities and not, I mean, some of them are pretty emotional, but many of them are just really fun. And at the end of it, you realize you had kind of forgotten partway through that you were looking and hearing someone who was different. Anyway, go take a look. SBSK, Special Books by Special Kids. It's on YouTube. It's on Facebook. You can find it. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let me bring Will. Will's on the other side of the glass today. Will's playing the music and taking the calls and everything else. Going to bring Will in for a second on this one. There is a point, Will, I think for most of us, and you were not old enough. You're a young man. You were not even alive during the Ben Johnson scandal, I'm sure. Were you alive during Ben Johnson's thing going um, on? I was very young. Maybe. Yeah. You're familiar with the Ben Johnson story. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so you understand. Now, you can't... Those listening who remember the Ben Johnson story well, as I do, you understand the whole pain of, well, cheating and being blamed, which on and on and on. You The, the whole steroid thing, and, and Canadians, I think, in particular... Americans too, to some degree, but Canadians in particular probably have a heightened sensibility about cheating in sports. We don't really have much tolerance for it because the time that that one happened and the Dubbin report and the Dubbin inquiry and all the rest, it was really painful. So brings us to a story about an American cyclist who has just had his world record stripped and his gold medal taken away from winning at the world championships of his particular racing last year. Oh dear. Yeah. And you say, all right, you know what? It happens. Don't have a lot of sympathy for you. I, I, most Canadians would say, I'm sorry, if you're going to take the stuff and you get caught, 
don't come with crocodile tears looking for sympathy from us. You took your chances and whatever. We so, would still say sorry at the start, of course. Well, of course. Well, we'd apologize. I'm sorry that I'm not going to give you any sympathy. Uh, anyway, this guy, his name is Carl Grove, lost his gold medal, lost his world record because he tested positive for performance-enhancing supplements. Uh, the actual stuff that he was found to have in his body was... <laughs> Where is it called here? Uh, n- um, clomiphene. There was something else that he had in his body. He had, a, uh, he had epid- epitrenbolone, a metabolite of trenbolin. I don't know what any of these things are, <laughs> but they all sound very steroidy. I mean, they all have that steroidy sound to them of stuff that you put in. I've, yeah, either that or like an obscure musical instrument. Yeah, I've gotten hopped up on an ep- on epitrobolone which is from Trembolone, which is also part of Clomiphene. <laughs> if you know what these things are, you're probably on steroids or you're a doctor or a pharmacist. There's only really one of three things that you're going to be if you know what these are. I don't know who else would know this stuff. <laughs> anyway. Ken Jennings. Ken Jennings, yes, thank you. So anyway, Carl Grove loses his world record, loses his gold medal, but this happens, right, Will? This happens. Yeah. People people cheat and people lose medals and lose records and get caught. Here's the kicker. Here's the twist in this story. Because obviously I'm not just telling you the story of a guy who lost. This happens all the time, relatively speaking. Why is Carl Grove such an interesting story? Carl Grove won in the 90 to 94-year-old category. <laughs> Of the world U.S. sorry the U.S. Masters Track National Championships, a guy who was in his early nineties was busted for doing this stuff. <laughs> How desperate are you to win before your time is up? Like you're looking and going, okay, you know what? I'm in my nineties now. I mean, how many years? How many good years do I have left? And I've only ever come fourth or fifth. I mean, if I'm going to get this record and I'm going to put my name in the, I better start putting the stuff in me now. <laughs> I better start going at it now. I'm just imagining them being like, hmm, I wonder if that 94-year-old guy moving at the speed of the Flash. <laughs> I don't, well, see, I'm not sure he was moving at the speed of the Flash. I'm, yeah, you're right. Just a, a light, brisk pace. I, I, like, this is, this sounds to me like the kind of race that you don't even need the technology for instant replay. You're moving in slow motion replay. You don't need, it's not like in the track, you know, when you watch the, on, on the banked, uh, the, what do you call it, the, uh, with cycling, the indoor cycling with the thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I'll think Falls, of the word in a whatever. second. <laughs> and they're just, you know, I mean, it's, no, it's 90 years old or older. I don't, it doesn't say in here what age he is, but he's between 90 and 94, and he's busted for performance-enhancing supplements. That's got to be some, he <laughs> lost his record, but he must have made some new kind of record as the oldest yeah. guy to get busted here. I would be interested to know what the what the non-cheating healthy participants were actually clocking. Like we joke because we are expecting ourselves to just be at a very uh, tortoise-like pace when we're older. But these are people who probably were were working on it their whole lives. Well, yeah, and all of a sudden here he comes. Right, and all of a sudden he shows up last year, and he's looking like a ninety-one-year-old guy who's, you know, a little wrinkly and kind of skinny. And all of a sudden he shows up, and he looks like Lou Ferrigno in The Incredible Hulk. And I was like, "What happened to Carl? <laughs> Better make him pee in a cup." Do you have a, the, the the one good thing is he's over ninety. He probably didn't have to make them wait too long for the pee test. 
He probably just said, can you just come and talk to me any point after I go to bed and before I wake up? I can do it 17 times over the course of the night. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.